0: Welcome to Horses and Bayonets, the podcast where we discuss geopolitical and security developments. I am James Barth, and in today's episode, I'm joined again by Sophia Kirsted. Sophia is an analyst in the US government after having previously worked in a variety of research positions. Among these, she has spent time at the Southern Poverty Law Center, where she produced insights into the white nationalist movement, as well as at the Chicago Project on Security Threats, where her research included the radicalization of U.S. citizens. I would like to specify that all the views expressed today are her own and not the U.S. government's. Today's episode is part two in a discussion on extremism. In the first episode we discussed the discourse on right-wing extremism and its implications today we expand on that to look at assumptions society makes about both right-wing extremists and radical islamist groups we also examine the response to extremism and the implications of de-platforming in the tech industry welcome back sophia thanks so much for being here
1: thank you for having me
0: so i want to start where we left off last time we spoke a lot about the lone wolf myth at the end but most of that was in the context of right-wing extremism. The lone wolf myth for a long time has been applied to Islamic extremism and was applied there first. So that's a kind of shared commonality between the two. Could you maybe elaborate some of the other misconceptions that we have both with right-wing extremism and Islamic extremism?
1: Yeah. So in my mind, similar to the early narrative that Islamic extremism could be sourced to the concept of jihad and conservative Islam, which was kind of a convenient way to otherize this threat. There are also convenient narratives that Western society has created about our current internal threats. So a closer look by the Chicago Project on Security and Threats, on people that were suspected of taking part in the Capitol riot, which was widely regarded as an event that was a mixture, that was fueled by a mixture of both conspiracy theories, but also encouraged by right-wing extremist groups. And so this study suggests that conspiracy extremist groups have been gaining support, but we've misunderstood who is supporting them. So the old uneducated and unemployed redneck stereotype doesn't apply to the Capitol rioters, which echoes a previous study that Post did of 112 people who US authorities suspected were involved with the Islamic State that undercut a widespread assumption that supporters of the group were also uneducated, isolated, and unemployed.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely a myth we've had for quite a while. And I mean, I remember years ago, I did some research that was looking at the rise of the far right in the UK, but it was only in the context of political parties. And there was this kind of, there was a significant amount of data that showed that those who were supporting these parties were from the more economically deprived backgrounds. But I think that, that this is definitely changing, firstly, and I think it's also different between support for political parties versus support for these more radical extremist groups. To that end, I completely agree with the statement about the Islamic extremists. There is a really great paper that the ICCT did, um, which compares 34 different studies about Western foreign fighters going to fight for ISIS. And it concluded, quote, the best current data on the relationship of unemployment and the outflow of foreign fighters from two large quantitative studies is conflicting. These studies also reinforce the view that the issue is one of relative deprivation and not actual poverty. So I think that's really interesting here as well.
1: Yeah. And in the uh, C-Post study that I referenced earlier about the capital riot, they found that two thirds of the people that they studied were that were involved in the siege are 35 or older Forty percent are business owners or hold white-collar jobs. Unlike the stereotypical image of the, you know, conspiracy theorist or the right-wing extremist, many of the people in the Capitol riot worked as CEOs, shop owners, doctors, lawyers, IT specialists, accountants. Court documents even indicate that only 9% were unemployed. So this really explodes a lot of our preconceptions about who is susceptible to these radical notions and why, which is uncomfortable because the American public, to the American public, because it forces us to recognize that racism, conspiracy, and xenophobia is also a part of wealth and the comfortable middle-class life too.
0: Yeah, I I feel like part of the reason that this myth has grown so easily is that it allows us to kind of really delineate between those who are extremists and those who aren't, instead of really just seeing this as a big spectrum where people kind of get pushed further down different ideological divides um, as we see with just growing radical polarization. So that is a demographic uh, misconception that we have of uh, both uh, Islamic extremists and right-wing extremists. Are there some other misconceptions we have about both ideologies?
1: Yeah. Something interesting that I wanted to bring into the conversation is the misconception that though these ideologies seem, are superficially, you know, diametric. Like one, one advocates for the, the power and supremacy of the white race and, you know, explicitly, you know, Western and American. And then there, you know, from the side of Islamic extremism, it, you know, it would seem so different. You would think that these don't, these ideologies don't share anything. But in fact, there are some similarities because both aim to restructure society according to a utopia the end of which violence is understood as a legitimate mean. And these are broad strokes, but extremists generally derive their justification for the use of violence from perceived historical injustices and through the fabrication of victim narratives. So this includes conspiracy theories that predict the apocalypse, the extinction of the Ummah, or the great replacement of the white race. So something that I think is important to consider when we want to combat these narratives in the future and when we are reconsidering how how our society should approach this and maybe ways in which it went wrong in the past, is that we need to understand the commonality between these popular phenomena is that they exploit people's grievances, draw on their insecurities, fear, and anger, then give a call to arms, a revenge narrative, and build the ego through images of combat training. Ultimately, it satisfies people's desire to feel empowered and to feel pure in radical or religious terms. And if that is what's so attractive to people, then maybe our policy prescriptions should be shifting.
0: In a way, it kind of seems like they're uh, they're both playing from the same playbook. Yeah. But you and I have also spoken a little bit about how within each ideology, there are also great differences between them. And again, then one of our misconceptions is that we tend to view both right-wing extremism and Islamic extremism as a kind of monolithic movements mm-hmm. could you maybe elaborate on some of the differences within each of the two ideologies that kind of sheds further light on that mischaracterization
1: yeah so it's important not to gloss over say Islamic extremism writ large as if it's all all the same because there's a different just because they share an alleged religious commonality um, I mean we wouldn't necessarily do that for right-wing extremist groups and so if we're not going to do that with right-wing extremist groups and we care about those differences we should also care about the differences between islamic extremist groups so unlike al-qaeda both isis and the far the recent far-right movement have encouraged more leaderless resistance tactics the structure and the strategy of al-qaeda and isis are different and the use of technology has also evolved too so i think that those are really important considerations.
0: And for either for listeners who haven't listened to the first podcast, or for those who have and remember that we spoke about the lone wolf myth last time, could you maybe elaborate on firstly just a brief overview of what the lone wolf myth is, uh, and then what the leaderless resistance is, and why those are two different things?
1: Yeah. So the the reason why the lone wolf myth is a myth is because it references individual actors as if they don't really have any context. And so, like we said in the previous episode, that's a myth because it divides our attention away from the social and political and economic reasons for why people might become more radicalized or committed to these ideologies. It suggests that say the Christchurch shooting just comes out of nowhere this poor you know psychologically disturbed young man just decided one day to do this it and it also buys into the idea that we should should be afraid of these people which is what they want and that there's no way we can predict it or prevent it so what's important to distinguish between the lone wolf myth and the truth that a lot of these groups do encourage the use of leaderless resistance tactics is that the lone wolf myth suggests that there's no way we can anticipate this threat. There's no way that, you know, the institutions can combat this or address this threat. And it skirts the issue that it's inherently social. The desire to do these actions comes from social interaction, which is embedded in your social commitment to these online groups
0: yeah in in a way it seems the pure fact that these groups are calling for leaderless resistance is the proof that the lone wolf myth is a myth because this is a social dimension of the terrorist attack itself and the reference there to the christchurch shooting is really interesting as well just because this individual was not necessarily incredibly well connected within extremist organizations but was nevertheless incredibly well connected in online extremist networks and vlogged his whole shooting spree he wanted other people to see it this was an incredibly social act
1: yeah and so that that strategy interestingly enough is i believe inspired by the strategies used by isis to glorify and spread fear about these kinds of acts. Um, Inspired by ISIS's use of technology, right-wing extremists similarly are using technology to take advantage of both the reach that it has, but also the way that it decentralizes the threat and makes it actually harder to then target from a security perspective.
0: So this brings me on to another topic that I'd love to talk about, which is the way that these two different ideologies interact with technology. And Al-Qaeda was perhaps the pioneer of using the internet to both connect different terrorist uh, cells, but also to encourage attacks. Could you talk a little bit about how Islamic extremist groups and right-wing extremist groups have used technology to further their causes?
1: Yeah, so... Far-right extremist groups began to emulate the tactics of Islamic militant groups, um, their language, the way they glorify perpetrators. And when they began to copy these tactics, attacks from the far right actually increased seven times. So it's clear that YouTube and other social media platforms are really effective in spreading propaganda material and, I guess, you could just say memes even that are Intended to lure young people into these thought processes, which then kind of draw people into chat groups and online recruitment that pushes people into smaller, more intimate digital groups. And that comes directly from the ISIS playbook.
0: That's fascinating. I think it's now something that. Uh, right-wing extremists in the US have perfected, in a way, um, this use of imagery and memes. Tracked more people to the organization through a uh, through a slightly more friendly atmosphere, and it's now being transported across to Europe as well. This is something that European right-wing extremist groups have now picked up from the US.
1: But there's a, so there's also a an interesting difference too, which some people argue makes it harder to take down this content from social media and other platforms, um, which I find interesting because it begs the question, like, is it that difficult or is it just our perception that it's difficult because it was so much easier for our security state to prosecute you know, people that we associated with Islamic extremism. But anyways, the, ma- the, the difference that people suggest is that there is a lot more right-wing extremist content and a much greater variety. So users can create it themselves more easily. For instance, it's a lot easier to create anti-Semitic uh, Pepe the Frog images than it is to produce an ISIS beheading video. And it also makes it much more difficult to block automatically. So in the past, you know, Facebook and Twitter have been reasonably successful at removing ISIS or Al-Qaeda propaganda off their platforms through attaching like digital hashes to images. And so machine learning techniques could actually become effective in eliminating this content, but less so for right-wing extremist content. I think that's an interesting question to consider.
0: That's really fascinating, kind of where both groups go from here when... The past couple of years, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube have become hyper aware in a way of their responsibility to take down this content, how both ideologies react to that and try to keep their content up. There is some great work that was done in the UK that looked at an Islamic extremist organization or a collective of, of individuals who were trying to promote propaganda online. And some of the different ways that they used were, for example, at the start of a video clip that was... ISIS propaganda, they would put in something completely unrelated to the clip that was taken from Western media. So the introduction to a news outlet in the UK, or throughout the video clip, they would have the logo of a different news organization just in the top right corner. And things like that can completely throw off the algorithm. So I think it's really interesting kind of going forward, whatever response our technology has, has to incorporate both AI, which has done an incredible job at, at picking up the sheer enormity of the problem out there but it has to merge that with this kind of people focused investigation aspect because otherwise we're going to lose track of how these groups are managing to evade detection.
1: Yeah, I agree, but I think it's also important to consider that that the human aspect, the the mod the fact that moderating this content becomes a subjective and uneven process also contributes to some of the narratives that or counter narratives that some of these groups create. So For example, part of the difficult nature of creating counter narratives or taking down extremist right wing content is because someone sharing photos of Nazis could be a historical post that's focused on like something very different, or it could be, uh, you know, an extremist kind of promoting the idea. So when it comes down to individuals making those decisions, then It makes it easy for conservative users to propagate suspicions that they're being targeted for their values, um, which then makes social media companies nervous about alienating half of their U.S. user base. So though, in my opinion, that doesn't mean that tech companies still shouldn't make an attempt to address this problem, it's still important to acknowledge how difficult that might actually be.
0: Yeah, in a way that kind of sheds light on the fact that there are really two questions at play here. One is, how do you measure and find and take down content that is overtly racist, anti-Semitic, or promoting of a terrorist ideology, versus how do you define what that content is? And those are two questions that technology platforms and software companies need to work out. I think Facebook has started down that path with this oversight board that it's trying to find this global commonality of, of how it can define what content should be taken down and what content shouldn't. But that's only firstly that's only one part of the equation, uh, because on the other side you also have how do we just find the content that is that's out there.
1: Yeah, and you referenced you know deciding you know whether or not to take down what pe- what you might call terrorist content. But we've also previously talked about how deeming these extremist domestic terrorists also leads us down a really difficult rabbit hole and it's not necessarily productive to apply the terrorism designation to a lot of these groups so then that for me begs the question of whether it could actually be useful for tech to play a role as an actor where the government can't or shouldn't i see this as a crucial moment Like you said, for some of these tech groups, like the Global Internet Forum for Counterterrorism, which initially formed to deal with Islamic terrorism online in 2017, to, you know, stem a lot of the violent content online, because that is where it's growing its power. Um, And just for context, uh, the Global Internet Forum for Counterterrorism founding members were Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and Microsoft.
0: Yeah, some really interesting questions there. So, a lot of the discussion that we've had up to now has made the assumption that deplatforming is a positive thing. But I think you and I were discussing just this past week about how there are some downsides to it as well. Could you maybe elaborate on some of those?
1: Yeah. So, I think just to start off, there is some evidence, for instance, from the Royal. Uh, United Services Institute that suggests that purging or deplatforming right wing extremists will be effective, but only in a specific way. So, for instance, when Facebook banned the far right group Britain First in 2018, the group tried to reassemble on Gab. And similar to how a lot of large follower ISIS accounts lost influence when they were forced from platform to platform, Britain First also saw lower user engagement once they were booted from the main site. So deplatforming from mainstream sites reduces the reach of these groups, but it can also change the character of the groups. So even if it diminishes the wider appeal, like you were saying, if a smaller user base develops, I think that also risks, you know, kind of a myopic echo chamber and also self-debate that could turn into the further radicalization of certain members.
0: The case of Britain First is really interesting because I actually just did some research on that myself. And so Britain First was deplatformed in the end of 2017, start of 2018 across Facebook and Twitter, along with its leaders, but recently has started to have a bit of success on Telegram. It had had absolutely no success on Gab. It had really struggled to find a following. But since the capital riots in the US, a number of US-based groups have shared content from Britain First using telegrams forwarded from Feature and what I found is that there has been a huge increase in the amount of content and the membership of UK-based groups that can be traced directly back to specific shout-outs from large US-based channels. So in some cases, this resulted in tens of thousands of new members within a month. So that speaks to this echo chamber that you mentioned before. Take, for example, a UK-based individual who sees the attention the Proud Boys get in the news, is drawn to their message and starts following a Proud Boy channel. From there, they can be redirected back to UK-based groups that espouse the same sort of ideology. Not only that, but by having this international aspect to the ideology, it gives the appearance that the grievances felt by these individuals, the sentiment expressed by these groups, transcend international boundaries and make one feel part of a much larger community this large community feeling is exactly the kind of thing that will exacerbate extremist sentiments
1: yeah it definitely brings into question you know what do you do when the only easy option is to silo social groups to separate them from larger society but then when you do that you also encourage the group to build on its own identity and emphasize the notion of brotherhood by being within the group so you know, where do we go from here? Is is definitely the biggest question
0: for us. I think one way to help listeners to kind of think about this is there was a great study that looked at the propensity of individuals in Malaysia to fight for radical islamist groups abroad and what it describes was an online funnel system where you have this massive net that's cast really wide on facebook and twitter and these really public platforms and bit by bit individuals who are deemed to be more open to more radical ideas slowly get pushed down the funnel into more offline more closed groups encrypted messaging apps Uh, sometimes they'll even be set up to kind of personal face-to-face conversations. But we start with this really massive wide net that then slowly gets narrowed down. And that's how these groups are trying to recruit, but it's also how we're seeing individuals interact with these platforms now and really needs to take into consideration how we go about approaching de because yes, we're taking away that big net that they had at the start to be able to reach these individuals. But then anybody who has passed that point has no option to go back they can't then take a step back from these closed channels to say okay no that wasn't for me i'm going back to facebook they are now telegram or gab that is their platform and that is their group and the fact that they have been kicked off facebook or twitter then kind of really exacerbates that feeling within these groups that they're being isolated from a part of society that doesn't represent them anymore
1: yeah i think that also echoes the fact that there's been little attention to the study of individual internet users' experience online and their usage of the internet in the process of radicalization rather than just kind of auditing the content of these groups. Because at a certain point, it's useful for policymakers and academics And, you know, security officials to have insights into the narratives and the marketing strategies, the beliefs and organization of these groups. But what is still a gap in our understanding is the instead of the supply side of the content, it's the demand side is how individuals choose to engage with this material and interact online with like minded individuals and what that process is and why it is so attractive and why it is easier or less easy in some cases.
0: So to provide a brief overview of what we've spoken about, we've spoken about the commonalities and the differences between the demographics or the composition of right-wing extremist groups and Islamic extremist groups. We've spoken a little bit about the similarities and differences between how the two groups approach the topic of technology and about how deplatforming has some positives to it, but also some pretty significant drawbacks that we need to take into consideration. Given all of this, where do we go from here?
1: Well, there has been a proposal about section 230, which is of the in the US of the Communications Decency Act, which says that providers of internet forums are not liable for user-posted speech even if they selectively censor some material. So, courts interpreted the as giving internet services a basically a safe harbor from liability for almost anything involving user-generated material. And without it, uh, firms that dominate the internet that we that we have come to know just couldn't exist uh, in the way that they do now.
0: And that's purely just because of the amount of libel cases that would have been brought against them?
1: Yeah. So without Section 230 protections, tech companies would be considered publishers. So they would be liable for how they manage the choices that shape what we see on the platforms. So some... Some policymakers have pushed that this needs to change, but it's, you know, I think a lot of experts question whether changes to this bill will actually help curb the spread of violence online if social media groups are held accountable for them in this way. I think that not only will it cause some problems like intense moderation to avoid liability, Um, But it also might drive the use of alternative platforms that we've talked about, like Signal, Telegram, or Parler. But that's also not to say that we should just leave content to continue to inspire people in open mainstream spaces, but that like a -a whack-a-mole strategy of removing content on social media is, you know, not the ultimate long game that we can play. So there's this fine balance that we're going to have to strike in the future. Removing section 230 protections is not going to address the root of the problem, but at the same time, tech companies do need to recognize that they can't leave content to inspire people in mainstream spaces.
0: Yeah, and I think I personally have a slight worry that too much of a focus on section 230 is going to detract away from a more holistic approach to solving the problem of extremism to me some of the debate around section 230 has implicitly made the point that the internet is the cause of all of this instead of realizing that the internet is a part of why more people are becoming more radicalized but it's not the only reason there was radicalization prior to it as well and i think going full circle to our discussion at the start about the just multiplicity and vast differences between people who are joining these organizations suggest that there's something more at play here it's a variety of people joining for a variety of different reasons and they are rational actors who have a who have a gripe with society and those sort of underlying socioeconomic issues or underlying psychological issues are also things that need to be addressed and not just through technology
1: Yeah, I think that brings us back to what we touched on in the beginning, which was the Capitol riot and the conspiracy and extremist groups that encouraged that action, and that although not all believers of QAnon's ideas are members of extremist groups, all do subscribe to a core set of beliefs that they or their way of life is under threat, that Others are threatened, like innocent people, innocent, you know, often like children or white people are threatened by dark forces that they have to expose or defeat. And so maybe the future of policymaking in this regard is to address why people feel this way rather than just removing ways in which people can express their feelings.
0: That seems like a great place to end. As always, chatting with you is so fun. I'm sure we could speak for another hour. I want to thank you again for your time and analysis. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Sophia.
1: Thanks for having me.